this is about helping people move differently around the city regions, about connecting people to, to jobs, to training, to leisure opportunity, you know, lifting people's horizons, to be honest, and, and giving them better lives. That's Andy Burnham, obviously, talking about one aspect of a new devolution settlement he struck with the government this week. But outside transport, how groundbreaking is this deal really? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there. Welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris. And in the Mill newsroom, Yoshi Herman. Hello, Yoshi. Hello. How are you? Well, it's been a while since we've done it together, my friend. It's been a good few weeks. Yeah, I think I did one with Jack and then you did one with Jack. Um, and now I'm back. So hi, listeners. Good to be back. Oh, I've missed you. I've really missed you. Um, uh, and I, I, we're recording remotely today. I'm really hoping that you don't hear my cat. Just a bit of a pre-warning. Uh, we get it's very kind of like lockdown 2020 vibes, isn't it? Having a having a interrupt, interruptions from a pet. Uh, my cat is very whiny today for some reason, and but she's called you know she's called Emmy. She's called Emmy. I've told you the story right that she's called Emmy uh, after Emmeline Pankhurst. Oh. So she is a strong northern woman. Yeah. And she says what she wants when she wants. So uh, she may be a part of this podcast. And was she <laughs> at, at was point. she a rescue? Where did you get her? Yeah, she was rescued. We rescued her mum actually. So we took a mum and a daughter. So we rescued a mum uh, and she came with her and her mum was very young. Her mum was only a kitten when we found her. Uh, a really good uh, really good um, uh, little little place in South Manchester. Just a very small like just a handful of people who who just really good souls and look after cats. Uh, so we got them from there. So she may make an appearance. Just a pre-warning uh, that if you hear her in the background, that's what that will be. Um, in significantly more important news, though, Yoshi, quite a milestone hit for the mill this week. Yeah, we got to two thousand members. Um, I think it was like Monday morning that we passed that, which is cool. Actually, it feels like it was quite recently we got thousand five hundred. We've had a really good few months. Um, but yeah, two thousand feels quite feels like a lot. Like. Um, you know, I think when we started out, 2000 would have been like a really big target because it's kind of the uh, roughly the number we needed to be profitable and pay for a minimum team. If you think of like two full-time journalists and an editor might be your like minimum team you could have for a little media company. 2000 basically pays for that and it pays for a bit of our marketing and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it was um, it was really exciting. I w- I'd love to say we went out for a big night out to celebrate or anything, but we didn't. We just uh, <laughs> just happy about it and um, and on to the next one. <laughs> oh, you cracked on with some important journalism. That's what you did. That's what uh, you did. On with the job. Um, okay, good stuff. Well, in that spirit, uh, let's uh, let's crash on ourselves then, shall we? Last week on the podcast, uh, we recorded shortly after Jeremy Hunt uh, delivered his budget statement to the House of Commons, and in it, there was a little bit of a nugget for Andy Burnham. And we were considering the, the new powers that Andy Burnham had been handed by the Chancellor and the new access to some cash and to some budgets as well. On this week's episode, we're going to take a slightly deeper dive into that because uh, we only had really the headline points at that at that point. We were still waiting for a fuller understanding of what it really meant and people's reactions and things. We have some of those now. So, Yoshi, um, take us into this new deal and also Andy Burnham signing this new deal. Uh, I think he described it as a historic deal with the government as well. Um, What do we know as of this week? Yeah, so this week, Andy Burnham signed effectively the latest devolution with deal with the government. There have been various deals. And one of the deals, the original one, was the one that, effectively created the job of um, Andy Burnham's doing, the mayor of Greater Manchester. But there have been 
deals since then, and this one has been talked about for at least the last year and a half, I think. It is a trailblazer deal. It's just, you know, branding that the government put on it. They said, we're going to do deals with Greater Manchester and the West Midlands um, to show how English devolution can move forward. So the deal was signed this week. It was it was it said, you know, according to the, the, the Conservative Minister, Dehenna Davison, who came up to Manchester to do the signing with Burnham, she said it will revolutionise, you know, how Burnham can operate. Burnham himself said... The signing of this deal marks a new era for English devolution. So quite big claims have been have been made about it. I've been trying to speak to people about what this deal really means um, and what, practically speaking, it really does. The big thing that people talk about is the funding settlement. So it's the idea of Greater Manchester getting one funding settlement instead of having lots of different pots of cash for different things. Um, how does it work now? So currently, the Greater Manchester funding situation is that you will get 10 million for this, 200 million for that, 50 million for that from different departments over different time frames with different sort of strings attached. And according to people at the combined authority, that makes it difficult for them to coordinate, um, di- makes it difficult for them to say, okay, we need a bit of cash from here, a bit of cash from here to do this project, because all of those bits of cash are basically ring-fenced for different things. They have different rules attached. Um, and the whole point of having Andy Burnham and a combined authority covering the whole of Greater Manchester, as opposed to just having local councils, is supposed to be about strategic coordination, you know. And, and, and they felt like that was difficult with the way they get money at the moment. So the idea of this is to have like, just like the Department of Transport will get given a huge wad of cash in their spending review by the, by, by, by the Treasury, this would give Greater Manchester effectively the same sort of settlement where you get all your cash in one go and you can decide what to do with it, which give, obviously gives much more autonomy to a mayor like Andy Burnham. However, I think the the thing that, struck me when I actually read the agreement is how contingent this is on a future decision, right? So the details are going to be announced at the future spending review. So the settlement that Greater Manchester gets will have to be negotiated with the government before a spending review. When will the next spending review be? Well, I think there's supposed to be one next year, but um, governments decide when they do them. Some people I've spoken to think it's unlikely that the government would do one just before a, an election. So the wording in the agreement in this trailblazer deal is the government therefore commits to give GMCA, Greater Manchester Combined Authority, single capital and revenue funding settlements at the next spending review agreed directly through a single process with the government. And that's the thing that people are excited about because that would really change how depletion works. Um, another significant change, which people have pointed out to me, is the idea of moving away from delegate, delegating bits of funding. So Greater Manchester can have the bit of funding that's to do with this bit of skills or this bit of getting people back into work. And more about delegating policy areas, which means you're less likely to kind of have a, a decision in central government um, kiboshing things. So, oh, well, this. So, for example, it's harder. It would be harder after this for government to just cut funding streams that flow via Greater Manchester and increase ones, for example, that flow via the centre. So the idea of bringing like policy areas, uh, power over policy areas to to the regions like Greater Manchester, West Midlands, instead of just saying this pot of cash, that pot of cash. So 
that's um, that. I suppose if you're trying to work out what's the most significant thing about this devolution deal, it's actually this very technical, potentially quite boring, but potentially quite important stuff about funding. Right. Okay. And and that takes us to, in particular, to skills, but also brownfield as well. There's an interesting tidbit in there, isn't there, about about, about um, brownfield funding. Yeah, so Greater Manchester will be getting £50 million a year over the next three years for brownfield remediation, um, which essentially is what you need to do if you want to build, you know, housing that isn't on on the green belt. I mean, we've got these cities that also obviously used to have all this industry. Um, and after that, you know, the, the, a, lot, a lot of these pieces of land, they're basically not economic to build on, i.e., you know, developers in the private sector are not lining up to build lots of houses on areas that would cost, you know, 10 million pounds to remediate because they've got chemicals this or contaminated that. Someone I spoke to said, this is the urban problem in a nutshell. We never invest, um, insisted people clear up their mess, right? So it's like, if we want to, if we, if we want to, um, if you if we want to be building on on areas that are not greenfield, um, this kind of thing is really crucial. On skills, um, that's been a big focus as well. Um, I'm a bit less clear on what's actually being handed over on skills. Um, the document says the government commits to devolving non-apprenticeship adult skills functions and grant funding to GMCA in the next spending review period, um, which doesn't sound immediate. There is there is a small immediate bit um, uh, to do with. Um, something in, in in the skills area, but it doesn't sound like an enormous step forward has been made in this area. I know that Andy Burnham was really keen to get more powers over 16 to 18 education um, skills, the, the skills bit. Um, that was a key aim. Um, they've agreed to establish what they describe as a, a joint governance board to provide oversight of post-16 post technical education. And I think, you know, the key there will be what does that actually end up meaning? I mean, you know, in six months, maybe we can ask them, what is this actually doing? How is this changing? The idea is that um, local leaders know more about what skills are needed in the local economy, and they want the providers of technical education to be more responsive to that. And um, it doesn't look like they've been given sort of, you know, wide-ranging powers in that area, but maybe this governance board is is, is going to be important there. So there's that. Um, there's a oversight of an of, of a affordable housing budget, which sounds quite big. But I would come back to the fact that in terms of like, you know, th- these words like historic and revolutionize, the only things they can really be referring to would be the idea of moving away from the current kind of devolved spending um, to a, a form of spending where there's much more local decision making because there's a single pot that would that would genuinely change things. It wouldn't get us anywhere near to the kind of devolution that you know, countries like Germany have, um, but it would get us away a little bit from this idea of kind of delegating, almost like delegating the admin around doing government to the regions, but not actually giving them the power to make decisions about how it's done. Um, so, so that could be really significant. But as I said. It'll only be at the next spending review, the national spending review, that we'll actually get the details of how big that settlement might be, and and that it would actually be confirmed. So, that's my um, that's my five minute attempt to summarise quite a long document that you know I, I I feel like I understand a little bit, but not entirely. Yeah, no, very very interesting actually, and and I think you know, just one final point on that. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast, don't we, about levelling up, obviously, and and the sort of inadequacy of this. Uh, this whole sort of bidding for a pot of, you know, this kind of, you know, a, a pitting towns against each other for a bit of cash to do at the town hall and all that kind of stuff. 
this is what leveling up looks like, isn't it? This is this is this is what it's about about about, and you, you know, it's not perfect, and there's still issues to be ironed out. And as you say, it doesn't take us to where some European countries are in terms of devolved power and devolved budgets. But this feels much more like the you know getting us a little bit closer to doing two things, I suppose. Um, answering that big question about what does what is leveling up and, and and in practice and making it happen, and also I guess if I may be so bold as to say, answering some of the questions that Brexit threw up, even if even if we don't know they necessarily threw them up, if that makes sense, about yeah. a sense of kind of autonomy in these regions, people having this, you know, the the the, the, the decisions that that affect people's everyday lives happening on their doorstep, um, and and being taken by people who understand the specific circumstances around. The way those people mm. live and the way those communities operate, this feels like it's taken us a, 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 a big stride in that direction. Well, you said a little step just now. Now you're saying a bit big stride. I think little step is. Much, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with medium step. Yeah, gonna, I, th- I think. <laughs> well, sm- I think. I think baby step is maybe the right. Um, is maybe the right sort of size of step to be talking about because. Look, you know Diane Coyle, she came on our podcast and she said it's basically simple, right? If you want to close regional gaps, you need to spend an awful lot of money. And you need to hand over an awful lot of power. And what we're talking about here is handing over little bits of money. And we're talking about promising that at the next spending review, there will be, you know, this this single settlement. There are very, there are very small powers here. But okay, where, where are we if all this goes through? We're still in a situation where most of the key decisions about how people's lives are governed happen centrally. Um, that the funding, even if the funding settlement puts all, all the funding streams that Greater Manchester currently gets, it'll still be relatively small. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people feel really optimistic because the direction of travel now feels right. You've got people in government basically realising that Greater Manchester effectively needs to be funded like a department rather than being um, like a department of government, rather being kind of like a, a charity kind of trying to get grants for different things. But it, to me, I don't know, to me, it feels relatively, it feels pretty gradual. And given that so much effort has gone in to negotiate this deal, I mean, the, you know, Greater Manchester civil servants speaking to London civil servants and Michael Gove going around all these departments trying to get concessions out of them for levelling up. I think that uh, this latest devolution deal is, you know, it, it's... It's, I think it does feel like baby steps, but you know we're, we're trying to speak to Andy Burnham, and, and and I think it's I think he will probably make the case that it, it is much more meaningful than that. So I think it's only fair that we should speak to him and and reflect what he says and have have a bit of that on the podcast. You know, we're trying to get an interview with him about this. So I'm I'm not a kind of policy expert, but just from the couple of conversations I've had, it sounds like there are promising things here rather than truly radical, um, groundbreaking things here. Okay, how about this then? One small step for devolution, leveling up, post-Brexit, etc. Mm. One giant leap in the right direction. Maybe, but it's I not think... In it's, it's not in itself significant, but it is significant that it's happening, that, that we are moving in the right direction. I think it's definitely <laughs> the, the significant. The right noises. It's definitely significant that places like Greater Manchester are adding more powers and adding more funding to their portfolio yeah i think that's i think that's definitely true okay thank you i appreciate you working making that ha- i appreciate your help in making that work for me um uh, okay uh, we will of course keep an eye on that story and we'll come back to it and, and you're right there are bits to be fleshed out and there are people to hear from on that so we'll continue mm. to do that 
for you. Um, let's move on, though, shall we, to another story that we've also kind of been watching, which is the university rent strikes. Uh, this is university students who are annoyed with how much life is costing them. And we've considered, haven't we, Yoshi, really, that, that university students are sort of right at the sharp end of all of the issues that we're talking about, the cost of living crisis, um, and of course, you know, sort of the, the post-pandemic fallout. These guys mm-hmm. and gals are going to have spent a huge amount of their time, their, their, their most recent years, um, with their backs against the wall a bit, feeling the full effects of the pandemic. And there they've crashed headlong into a cost of living crisis in university, mm-hmm. and they're a bit annoyed about it. And there's been a development on this this week. Yeah, I mean, the development this week is that this this long-running occupation of a university building has, has been ended, right? So effectively, a court granted a, the university a possession order this week. Um, the occupiers got the, the order um, and the eviction took place. You know, it looked pretty heavy-handed, but I suppose any eviction of getting people out of a building um, has been. The university says they sort of regret the fact that they've had to do this, but they say the protesters have been there for a significant amount of time. Um but regular readers of The Mill will know quite a bit about this story because Molly Simpson has been reporting on it. Like she reported on the rent strike before they even kind of started the occupation. Like, and she even kind of asked them, like, are you going to be radical here? Are you going to do anything? And they were kind of like, not sure. And then they did do this occupation. Um, I think if you go back and read Molly's piece a couple of months ago, it really distills what this is about. Clearly, on the one hand, like, you know, left-wing radical students on campus are always looking for opportunities to to do stuff like this. But the students she spoke to, like, they did, they were living in not great rooms. They had real complaints about, like, repairs not being made. They felt like they were overpaying. They felt like some of the blocks they were living in were completely outdated. Um, I think there's a sometimes a bit of a sense among students at the university that, like, how come the university can afford to build all these amazing new science labs and new equipment and, and and massive new buildings and yet we are still living in like pretty shoddy accommodation not not all of them but certainly some of them and so that's kind of what this was about since this eviction um the 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 strikers have tweeted shame on university of manchester that they would rather do this than consider basic demands for affordable rent uh, so molly's speaking to a few of the um of the of the people involved and and, and we'll have a couple of quotes from them in in, in one of our editions this week Mm-hmm. Okay, I must admit, I had one of the um, one of the guys who was leading this on my on my radio show a couple of months ago, and uh, or it might be weeks ago, really. And um, I did, I got, I, I got, I did get the sense that he was sincere. You know, mm. I got the sense that he was genuinely really frustrated and felt like he'd been shortchanged, and that the mm. accommodation just wasn't up to the mm. the standard that he was being charged for, as well as perhaps having that streak of that kind of rebellious student streak of perhaps perhaps you know if it wasn't this, there'd be something that he'd be. Um, mm. Mm. campaigning against that kind of streak of activism that I guess uh, existed a lot of students uh, but it was also real you know there was something really something genuine at the, at the heart of mm. it um okay uh, more on that as, as we get it um tell me about the Halle and, and I, I, I don't know very much about this story Yoshi so you're gonna have to uh, help me out but a 24 year old mm. conductor mm. uh there was a big headline about this in uh, in the mill this week mm. um what, what is this story yeah so this was a really nice piece that we ran um, about this conducting competition. So the Halle has this orchestra's conductor's competition and the final of it was held publicly for the first time in Bridgewater Hall. And we sent Hugh Morris along, who is the perfect person for this because he's written for The Mill before. He's a classical music writer. He actually writes about other music too, but um, he's written for us about classical music. He's written for us about jazz. He's written for the New York Times. And we sent him along and 
what struck me about this piece was just how sort of scary the competition is. Like it's like a live job interview in which these young conductors have to lead like a world-class symphony orchestra on stage in front of people, you know, musicians who are like really experienced um, following their lead and they're playing, you know, they are, they are playing. No, they're not playing. They're vying for a, a really important job. Like they're vying to be the assistant conductor at the Halle, uh, assistant to Sir Mark Elder, who's one of Britain's most revered conductors. Um, and they're kind of, it's it's like the opportunity to get a role that could really boost their career, that could really like springboard their career. Um, so the winner was a Japanese-American conductor called Ewan Shields, who we spoke to for the piece. He's 24. Um, he beat out some older um, candidates. He beat out like lots of talented people from around the world. And like the piece just really brought home to me just like the nerves, you know, like the kind of like, there was a quote where he said, I faced the fact that, okay, I don't feel like, I, I, I don't like that I'm nervous. I don't, that I'm feeling like this. It's not very pleasant, but I have to be my own friend. It was a lot of the piece was just an interesting insight into like, what do you do when you're a 24 year old and you're on the stage and you've got hundreds of people watching you and you're in front of a world-class orchestra and so Mark Elder is listening and like you're trying to become his assistant. I just thought it was a, a fascinating little insight into these into the, this process. And like uh, classical music is like a nerve jangling world. Obviously you get on stage, everyone goes quiet and then you have to like perform and like, um, yeah. the, these conductors, like they're, they, they're quite, I think they're quite sort of special people in a way. So yeah, I really recommend that piece. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question here, Yoshi. You might not know the answer to, so just so forgive me. Apologies in advance. Um, how are how are the Halle like doing? I mean, you, when you know when you consider we've been talking a lot lately, haven't we, about funding to the um, uh, to the National Opera and to you know they're obviously a mile away from miles away from from Oldham Coliseum, but mm. uh, we've obviously seen the BBC Singers are being disbanded as well mm. um, in in the next like, next week or so, I think. And these you know the sort of these big cultural cornerstones, cultural institutions feeling the pinch. How are the Halle getting on? So I don't know like their latest finances, but the last time I spoke to their chief executive, which was to be fair, more than a year ago, it sounded like they were pretty robust. So they make a good amount of money from tickets. Um, they get some subsidy as well. Uh, they got the, the COVID funding during the pandemic. So I haven't heard anything that like the Halle's in trouble or anything. And they're like a very well-known brand. Um, they are considered to be one of the best orchestras in the country. Some people consider them like one of the best orchestras in the world. I mean, I'm not qualified to like weigh in on that one way or the other, but they're a very, very good orchestra. People come and watch them from across the North. They can attract really good people. Sir Mark Elder, their um, director, he is a kind of, you know, very, very well-known figure. The Halle is particularly well-known for playing um, you know, Elgar and that kind of bit of, um, you know, romantic sort of classical music. And they, I think they do pretty well. I think the the, the thing that surprises me, though, is just that more people don't go. Like, you, you, you'll sometimes go and there's a decent crowd and then other times you'll go and, you know, you, you could have, you know, you could say like maybe it's half full or something. And it just seems odd to me that more people don't know about them because I, I I think within all the influx of these new Mancunians people coming from all around the world a lot of people are moving here from countries where like classical music is really really mainstream like it's in the curriculum and it's like a lot, it's a lot more popular than it is in the UK so I would I'm kind of surprised that the Halle isn't given how good it is um uh that it isn't always sort of chock, chocker full 
And uh, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a bit of an education. Maybe they need to be, do a slightly better job of telling their story publicly or um, I don't know. But we, we cover them quite regularly because, you know, it's you have to be aware of like the things in the city that I think are like genuinely world class and like um, that, that Manchester can really like shout about. And, you know, obviously there's the football teams and there's other stuff, but the Halle is definitely in that bracket. Mm, okay. Well, they're on um, they're on Thursday night this week and uh, Saturday uh, at the Bridgewater Hall. So um, go take a look. Uh, I would that uh, 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 an early nod for you uh, for the Halle. Uh, go and support one of Manchester's great cultural institutions. Um, mm. Okay, Yoshi, a couple of quick bits, uh, a couple of quick tidbits before we go. Uh, my favourite subject, if you will allow, of anti-West Coast. We've been waiting on some news on what would happen to the West Coast franchise after a really turbulent um, couple of years, really, for, for, for Avanti. And we've got some news on that this week. Yeah, so they've had their contract extended by six months, um, which is not, you know, it's like when a footballer gets an extra year or whatever, and then, then they're like 35. It's like not a massive vote of confidence in that person's future. But um, they have made improvements according to the government. So they had their new timetable in December. Um, 5% of Avanti services were cancelled in the four weeks up to the 3rd of March. And that had been 10.5% in the four weeks to the 4th of April and almost 20% in the four weeks to the 7th of January. So you can see there has, on that metric at least, there has been an improvement. Um, and, you know, I mean, I have to say, I go on Avanti quite often, back and forth to London or going to my mum's or whatever. I actually generally have found it to be reliable. Like, I, I don't quite um, relate to all the, like, tweets and stuff about how terrible it is. I mean, it's overpriced, but then that is just, like, British rail stuff between i find it's like you you know you get to london in two hours i, I find that generally like the trains that you expect to be there there you probably use it even more than me so am, am i right in about saying that yeah i mean i i think it's when it's good it's good when it's good it's really good i mean you know being able to get to london in in uh, you know two hours 15 mm. uh or you know 220 depending on, on the route you take and uh you know if you get what you know if, if you if you get a good journey when it's on time it's two hours 15 you get one of the new and improved um, carriages. They've done. They've done. You know, they've done a fairly decent upgrade. Uh, you know, you can get a coffee and the toilets working, and you know it's good. You go. You go, you, can, you get from one end to the other, and you go. Oh well, well that went really well, and it's nice and it's smooth mm. and it's an, it can be quite an enjoyable thing. The problem is that all too often, especially and those stats for me, I feel those stats. You know, I look at those stats: five percent mm. um, uh, up to March, ten percent up to February, eighteen uh, percent up to this, up to the seventh of, of January. I can, I've definitely, you know, in that time when it was hitting eighteen percent, I wouldn't be surprised if it was over that as well for a good chunk of last year. I, I was really feeling it. You know, I get that train twice a week, so mm. I, you know, I do do it a lot. And so statistically, I suppose the chances are I'm going to, I'm going to come, I'm going to encounter more delayed or, or cancelled trains. But it became, it became actually kind of impossible to travel. Like you just didn't. It was just a complete lottery on whether or not you were going to get to. You know, I've, I've taken more than one taxi from Birmingham uh, to London um, because of you know, because of being caught up. And I can, and I must say, I, I credit where it's due because I am a, an Avanti moaner. Um, it has been a lot better. Mm. Um, again, like I say, I can feel those stats. It doesn't yeah. surprise me. It's only 5% of services mm. from March. I don't know what they've done. There's a new chief exec. And I guess, mm. uh, you know, there's been, there was a lot of absences around COVID, which I think have probably eased off a little bit. And mm. of course, there's, there's the strike action, which does continue. Um, and, and there's, you know, there is working to rule as well. I think they've probably brought in and managed to train up some some more staff as well to mm. fill some of those gaps. Whatever they've done, it has improved. But, but you know, 
it is still, you know, it still should be better. I mean, it should be absolutely brilliant. One of the richest countries in the world, mm. connecting two of the biggest and most important cities in the world. Yeah, true. Although, although, although no British trains that I've been on, like, I'm completely no. brilliant. Like, so, so <laughs> all in a way, maybe that's a bit of an unfair standard. Like, if, if generally speaking, 19 times out of 20, it basically works. Like, the ticketing kind of works. And, like, the, I don't know, I just, yeah. I could sort of see why they'd be like, well, if it's now broadly the standard that we expect of British railways, then yeah, we'll extend it, even though there's been a lot of anger and we'll focus our energies on the ones that are, you know, genuinely still horrific. I think like Transpennine might be like one that people complain about a lot. So- no, totally. Absolutely. I mean, Trans- Transpennine is, is is terrible. Northern Rail is, is an absolute nightmare. In fact, my neighbour, uh, in fact, I was speaking to my neighbour about this just yesterday. This is anecdotal, I appreciate, but um, uh, our, our nearest train station is... Uh, Patrick Croft, and there's one an hour anyway, and the you know the ten past eight has been cancelled for the last mm. three days in a row, and that's right. the, you know the ten past eight one. That's the one that's getting you to work on on time, isn't it? In, yeah. Into the city, yeah. so you know that's been a real problem. I think, I think, I think you're right actually, and I'm, I will I will make one one point on this is that I've been very frustrated with Avanti, and I've I've joined the chorus of uh, frustration mm. specifically with them as a company because of the staffing issues and and stuff that was definitely within their control. Mm. There is another big bit of this that's out of their control, which is our decaying transport infrastructure. We have Victorian Mm. transport transport infrastructure, which just isn't up to the job. We haven't Mm. invested in it. We haven't uh, innovated enough. And and, and our entire network really leaves a hell of a lot to be desired. Mm. And that's going to be the next... I mean, that's one of the big fundamental challenges, isn't it, of the next decade is Mm. our transport infrastructure. And HS2 obviously been in the news Mm. this week. Uh, with with the with the cancellation of that, but you know, again, that's that comes with all sorts of different problems and challenges and question marks. Anyway, doesn't it? That's a massive issue, which, to be fair, is out of the hands of Avanti for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, that we will return to. I can guarantee you, uh, even whether there's a story to tell on it or not. Um, uh, Cell Food Hall. Let's talk about that. Uh, oh, I, I love this place, Cell Food Hall, and it's there's a it, is it on its way out? Yoshi, what's going on? Yeah, it's closing. I've actually never been there, so you can tell us, you can tell listeners what it's all about. But it's closing. Um, they said after facing unprecedented cost increases over the past twelve months, we are unable to keep the business moving forward sustainably. Um, which is interesting because obviously we were talking about food halls last week, very different food hall, but you know the food hall concept with Freight Island and how difficult they found to get the model working. Other ones like um, Altringham Market and Mackie Mayer seem to have got the model about right. There's the one Hatch on. Um, Oxford Road, which which seems to be doing okay. So um, I don't know, is it a very difficult model to run or are there specific cost pressures that have, have made it difficult? What's sale food hall like? Well, I've got. To, I must say, I've only been once or twice. Uh, I, I went for a coffee with David Collins from the Sunday Times. There, who is yeah. a former podcast guest, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, a, a mill regular, isn't he? Um, so I, I, I did meet him there a little while back, and I must admit, I quite liked it. It's not Mackie Mare, and it's not Altrincham uh, mm. Food Hall. It's. I mean, it's it's neither of those two things. Mm. It's much more cantini. I think there's only one or two kind of outlets in it, really. I don't think it's sort of like in in that that vibe mm. of Mackie Mare where you bring together lots of independent outlets and then you, they all have a shared space, which I think is a really nice idea. It's a really brilliant concept that, and you've got mm. to you've got to imagine that there are business advantages as well yeah. um, for people not having to run their own establishments, etc. Um, so it's 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 none of those things. I think the I think the sad thing really is that I, mean, I really do. The sale is lovely. It's got a really lovely. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, sales kind of like you know, it, it, it's a bit more gentrified, isn't it? In general, sale, 
but I think that it's done. You know, if you think about, we, we, we've we've had some chats on this podcast about the about the sort of shopping market, shopping mall kind of thing, mm. and you've got Eccles shopping market, and I think there's mm. you know there's one in Bolton as well, and these often quite quite run down, neglected. Uh, you know, they, they, they sort of epitomise uh, left behind North of England. Mm. You know, there's a there's a Poundland in there, and a Greggs and a Wilco, and you know, it's really really quite depressing. I think what sale market and sell food hall in that area had managed to do was kind of put the trend on that lots of little independent places um some you know again it, uh, we could perhaps get into the d- dividing line between Eccles and sale and there's lots of um, socioeconomic differences between the two of those things i appreciate but i i just felt like sale had really nailed its market it, it's it's sort of shopping center yeah. and sale food hall was quite a big part of that so it is sad yeah, but there you go. If it's not, if it's not viable, maybe that tells you something uh, a different story. Um, speaking of venues, Night and Day Cafe are back in the news as well. This is a story that we are, of course, watching very closely. And what's the latest on this? I think there's basically no latest. It's like when the people on the news channel get asked for an update, and the, you know there is no update. I mean, they, they there is a court hearing, hasn't been resolved again. Um, I don't know exactly what the technicalities are, but you know another court hearing ended without the future of the venue being decided. Basically. Um, night and day, as we know, is appealing the council's noise abatement notice. I mean, it's getting quite boring, isn't it? Talking about one venue for this long, but perhaps like the reason people care about it is it kind of tells you a little bit about how much does the city really care about keeping like nightlife strong while it's filling up the city center with residents, and how do you like um, how do you balance those trade offs between like people want to have a quiet night's sleep and like venues want to be able to carry on you know doing what they've been doing what they're good at i'm actually reading andy spinoza's book at the moment uh, manchester unspun which is really interesting like basically like a modern history of, of of manchester from his perspective and he talks about the time like i i didn't know about this but in the i think it's the early 90s manchester's city center nightlife was massively held back by all these restrictions that had been put in in the 60s right so apparently there was loads of really raucous stuff going on in the 60s and gambling and drinking dens and like whatever stuff that the authorities didn't want in the city center. So the police started sort of um, objecting on the grounds of like, we've got enough nightclubs, we've got enough bars to pretty much every application. So you had almost like a quota, like a set number of nightlife establishments in the city center. And what um, a bunch of councillors did, along with the nightlife economy, is they, and I think Pat Carney was was key in this, is they, according to the, the, um, my, Andy Spinoza's book, they kind of turned this around. They got the police to stop objecting. They kind of basically uncapped it by some means. And the and Manchester's central sort of nightlife economy took off as, as a result of that. Um, because suddenly it, you didn't have like the police objecting to every application, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that one of Manchester's big economic strengths in the past 20 years has been that lots of nightclubs and bars and restaurants have flourished and have done really well. Um, and it's a big draw. Like people come from across the north. People even come from like London for a big night out in Manchester. So I think people are slightly looking at this case as a bit of a test case. Like, can this city actually sustain nightlife alongside, you know, £300,000 apartments in the city centre? Um, and yeah, this this particular case is rumbling on. But the, the, the council now says it's going to create a special body or a special board to to look into this issue. 
um, because they want to um, that they, they want to work out what kind of maybe work out a little bit more what their approach is. So yeah, I recommend uh, Andy Spinoza's book if you want the background on this. Okay, very good, excellent. Um, all right, almost it from us for this week. Uh, anything else you're working on, Yoshi, in the Milnews room at the moment that we should be aware of? We're trying to speak to Andy Burnham about the uh, devolution deal. <laughs> so Andy, <laughs> if you're listening to this, please um, give us that interview because I think you know if ever listeners are going to be interested in the devolution thing, I think it'd be in the week when like a new deal has been signed. Uh, we're trying to do that. Um, yeah, we, we're working on some really interesting stuff about about climate change um, in, in, in the city. We're actually, you know, we're hiring because our sister newsletters in Sheffield and Liverpool are both hiring uh, teammates, so team, team, team members, staff members. So um, I'm interviewing people tomorrow um, about that and and Molly's been like leading on that hiring process so yeah there's a ton of ton of stuff going on um, and yeah just just fingers I guess we've had an amazing start to the year as you said like hitting 2000 much earlier than we we're expecting so we I feel like we've got a lot of momentum at recently Guardian mentioned us and we got mentioned at like a conference organized by the FT last week as like a kind of I can't remember what they said, but they said it's kind of a good example of, of 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 local news done well or something. So I feel like we've got a lot of momentum. I'm just sort of hoping we can um, capitalize on that in the next couple of months. If there's anyone listening to this uh, who isn't a mill member yet and, and would like to become a paying member, would like to join our community, would like to come along to our events um, and, and would like to be a bit more part of it and also fund the journalism that goes into the podcast, then please go to uh, manchestermill.co.uk forward slash um, subscribe and you can join there for seven pounds a month or 70 quid a year and drop me an email after you've done it as well so um so i know who you are excellent good stuff all right we also like to leave you with some bits and bobs to do around greater manchester don't we so what else is going on yoshi what should we be doing this week so my one and it starts friday night is cat on the hot tin roof um at the royal exchange uh, it's opening um uh, now and it's it's on until end of april so big show for them um, we always obviously, you know, wish them well because they've had some difficulties at the Royal Exchange, but, um, that, 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 that looks to be a really great show and, and maybe we'll have a review of it in the mill coming up. Okay. Excellent. Um, I, I, I uh, they've got a bit, of a bit of a Tennessee Williams thing going on at the moment, haven't they? At the Royal Exchange because they did, um, yeah. the glass menagerie not that long ago. So yeah. interesting. Um, I've got four for you. Can you, were, were you alive four? No, four's way too many. Give me two Is maximum. It too- yeah. Oh, no. Okay. I've, got, I've really got to pick two. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll whittle through them really quickly. Can I do four, but in the time that I would normally do no. two? No, two. Uh, two is a maximum. Okay. You have to choose. All right. Life no. is, life is uh, not choosing. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll tell you about. Oh, God. Uh, okay. Well, Lemons, 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 Lemons is on at the Opera House. Um, this, I think that starts this weekend, actually. And I think it runs for the. for for. I think it starts. I think it might actually start like today as we record uh, and run for a bit over the weekend. I, li- I actually literally just saw it on the West End. Uh, nice. On Monday last week, and it was quite good. It's not going to blow your socks off, but it was. Uh, it has some interesting things about um, about. It's quite some some prescient uh, mm-hmm. issues around mm-hmm. protest and about sort of government involvement in people's lives and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It's it's there are some really interesting themes in there. Um, it's very ambitious and it doesn't quite fulfil its ambitions, but it's mm. a good watch. And tickets are from like 13 quid, so uh, it's cheap enough to take a punt on it, I'd say. And mm. uh, which of these do I mention? Okay, Mind Mangler is going to be my nod as well, uh, which is uh, Henry Lewis and Jonathan Sayer, who I, I, I like a lot. I'm a big fan of these guys. They are mischief comedy who are the hit machines. They've had some stuff on, on the telly, and they are the guys behind the player that goes wrong. So it's silly, and it's ridiculous, and it's not going to uh, challenge you intellectually, but it is lots and lots of fun. And they've got a, um, a show 
called Mind Mangler uh, that they're bringing to Manchester this week. Uh, so just go Google those guys uh, if you want to check that out. Uh, okay, that's it from us for this week. Thank you for being with us. Uh, don't forget, as Yoshi says, you can subscribe right now, manchestermill.co.uk to get more quality journalism into your inbox. And we're back in your podcast feed at the same time next week. Yoshi, thank you. Thank you.